Morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you all. Thanks for that update. If you have your Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 2. Hopefully you uh, were given, if you haven't already been given one of those Genesis journals, we'd love for you to get one of those if you're new. Welcome, my name is Darren, I'm one of the shepherds on staff, and uh, the, that, that idea of a Genesis journal might be completely foreign to you. One of the tools we've been using in our studies is a, a book that's got both the, the passage of Scripture that we're studying, and then a journal page on the facing page. It's just a helpful way to kind of keep track of the things God may be saying to us over time, and so we've got one of those for you. If you don't have one already, you can grab one in the lobby uh, this morning on your way out. But uh, we want to make sure you've got those tools. And if you've got a Bible or there's Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can turn your Bible on if it's on your phone. I don't know, whatever. But Genesis 2 is where we're at. Now, we're continuing in our study uh, of uh, the creation story. And as we come to Genesis 2, 4 through 17, it may feel a little bit like there's some redundancy. If you've been with us through the study, you might be like, wait a second, what's going on here now? We, we just heard that God created the heavens and the earth. We saw that in Genesis 1. And now we come to Genesis 2. At the beginning last week, we saw that God rested from his labor. And now, uh, now it seems like the creation thing's starting again. Well, what we want to understand here is that we're catching two different Two different lenses of the same story, right? So two different, uh, not to use gigantic words, you don't have to write this down, but if we looked at Genesis chapter one, I would say what we're seeing there is sort of a cosmological lens, right? We're seeing the universe and everything in it created by God for his glory, exactly as he wants it to be, and then calling it good or very good, right? So that's kind of big picture. The entire of creation was created by God and exists for him. So we see even the creation of man as the, the pinnacle of the created order created for God. As we come to Genesis chapter 2, we'll see a, a shifting of a lens from a cosmological lens, if you will, to an anthropological lens. And all those giant words mean is that now what we're looking at isn't so much that God created everything for himself, but now what we're beginning to see is God engaging and investing in his creation, walking with man. In fact, the subtitle for our study in Genesis is walking with God. Now in Genesis 2, we won't just see God sort of creating things, uh, but, but now we see God engaging with those things, actually walking alongside man, invested in the course of man's life, giving a sense of his expectation and his favor. That's what we'll see in Genesis 2. So we're not seeing a completely different creation account. We're seeing it from an anthropological lens. And in fact, that's kind of telegraphed to us here in verse 4. So it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. By the way, that phrase, these are the generations, we'll see that repeated in the book of Genesis. Every time we'll see that phrase repeated, it's going to essentially be sort of giving us a heads up to say, now we're going to fully expand in the text that follows, right? This is sort of a fuller explanation or a fuller development of what's preceded. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So note here that heavens and the earth, which is the way it was uh, articulated in Genesis 1, it gets flipped here in Genesis 2-4. Now we see the earth and the heavens. That's in essence to sort of tip the, the cap to us and say, now we're talking about man's experience of God. God walking with man. We're seeing it from a slightly different lens. It's also worth noting, it's not trivial, it's important that for the first time in the scriptures we see God's personal name, right? We pronounce it in English as Yahweh. It's found here in Genesis 2 uh, for the first time. In Genesis 1, we, we saw God referred to as Elohim, which means creator. It means the one to be feared. Now we see Yahweh, which is maybe not as big of a deal to you, but to the original audience, when Moses was writing this, remember the people of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land. And Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing this down with the name Yahweh. That's the name of the God who had made a covenant with them, right? 
When we think of Yahweh, we think of the covenant God who walks with man and covenants with him. So it's important that as, uh, as Moses is laying this out, he's saying this isn't just God at a distance. This is the covenant God that we know and who walks with us. Here he is, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, right? That's what we see here in 2.4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, there it is, Yahweh Elohim, made the earth and the heavens. And then he's going to get us into some detail about what this relationship or this interaction kind of looks like. I'm going to give you four main points this morning. If you're taking notes, these will be alliterated. I'll I'll point them out to you as we go. But the first one here we see in verse uh, 5 through 7. Here's what it says. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground... Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. The first thing I want to emphasize in this sort of retelling of the creation story to give us a sense of God walking with man and man walking with God is the idea of God as a craftsman. God crafted man. This uh, this language in verse 7 that says God formed the man of the dust. The picture there is of a potter working with clay. It's of an artisan or an artist that's making things exactly the way he wants them to be made. That God didn't just, uh, you know, in Genesis 1, again, we hear God say, let us make man in our image. And so he made man and that was it. We We don't get a lot of the intimate sort of personal detail. We come to Genesis 2 and what we see is that God was actively involved in the shaping of who we are, the crafting of who we are. There's a, there's a personal, relational aspect to this. There's something intimate about it, that God formed us. We talked last week about the fact that if you're a painter or if you're a weaver or if you're any kind of a songwriter, that the, the piece of art you're creating isn't finished until you say it's finished. And you can keep painting and you can keep working the piece until at some point you go, that's it, that's what I intended to make. So when we think about God forming us, right? The intimacy of that, the craftsmanship of it. When we think about God crafting man, I don't just want you to think about his power. I want you to think about the personal nature of that, the hands-on nature of that, that God formed us and that what we are and who we are is something that God made exactly the way he wanted it. That God created us the way he wanted us to be. It says here that, uh, that God formed us out of the dust, that he formed us out of the dust, which is humbling to say the least, right? That we're made from dirt. Might be why we as human beings get stuck in the mud so often or whatever. I actually find this a little bit better than what my mom used to tell me when I was growing up. So my mom used to tell me this poem, and I will warn you before I quote it to you uh, that it's a sexist poem. Shame on my mom. But she would say, uh, she would say, what are little boys made of? That part doesn't rhyme. And then she would say, snips and snails and puppy dog tails. Have you heard that before? Some of you generationally will go, no, I've never. Number one, I don't know what a snip is. Number two, gross, puppy dog tails. Why do we make anything out of it? We should leave dogs alone. Leave them alone. Leave their tails alone. But the worst part about this poem is she'd say, what are little girls made of? And then she would say, sugar and spice and everything nice. Well, that hardly seems fair, right? It's easy enough for her to quote a poem like that because she's a lady, right? I always looked at that poem and thought, I think it must have been a lady that wrote this poem because I'm not made of whatever a snip is. I definitely don't have snails in me, right? And we come here to this, and it says, God formed man from the dust. And I, I personally think dust is a little bit better than snips and snails and puppy dog tails. But I'll say this, dust ain't exciting, right? It's not fancy. There's no sense in which you can get puffed up and excited about being made of dust. Uh, it's meant to be humbling. 
It doesn't say that we're made from diamond dust. It doesn't say that we're made from gold dust. It doesn't say that we're made from pixie dust. It's just regular old under your bed dust, right? And that's, what is that? It's nothing. Yeah, good. Take that in. Take it in that God forms us from something that is relatively irrelevant, right? But then note that not only does he form us from the dust, he breathes life into our nostrils. So while we're made of something quite basic and, and quite unvaluable, if you, invaluable, that might be the right way to say that. While we're made from something quite basic, this basic creation has been formed by the hand of God himself and then enlivened or given life by the very breath of God. The thing that makes us a living creature is the breath of God in our lungs. Which is interesting, by the way, uh, Jeff, Lily, and I used to get into long conversations about why God breathes into our nostrils, right? I don't, I don't want to get hung up on it right now, but if you've taken a CPR class, you know that modern science tells us that if you're trying to revive someone who needs oxygen, breathing into their nostrils ain't the best way to do it, right? In fact, if you pulled a drowning person out of the pool and you flopped them up onto the sidewalk and you started breathing into their nose, they would not let you do CPR anymore, right? They would go, this isn't a good way to pull this off. I would love for you to think just for a second about why it is that God breathes into our nostrils. I don't want to get hung up here. But I think that God breathing into our nostrils, while it might not be the most effective way to fill up our lungs, has something to do with scent and the importance of scent throughout the Bible. Again, not to go down too much of a rabbit trail, but, but for what it's worth, scent is the one of your, or your sense of smell is the one of all your senses that you can't sin with. I think that's interesting. We could talk about that a little bit more. It's not a, it's not a, a thing we're tempted by. It also happens to be the one of our senses that has the longest memory, in my opinion. So for instance, if I say to you, uh, uh, I want you to think for a second about the smell of fresh cut grass. You get it, right? You can think of it. You can imagine it. And what's interesting about the smell of fresh cut grass or the smell of baking cookies or whatever, you don't necessarily need to go and smell that again in order to enjoy it right now. But if I say that the taste of fresh baked cookies, what happens? Gluttony starts to stir in you and you think, I know what that tastes like and I want to taste it again, right? There's a thing about touch. There's a thing about sight. We see things and we want to see them again. We touch things. We want to touch them again. We taste things. We want to taste them again. With smell, we have this great memory. I, I will say that I think God breathes into our nostrils because there is a lingering scent of his breath that he wants to leave in us. I could be wrong about that, but that's, that's my take. What's important here is not why he breathes into our nostrils, but the fact that the breath in us is God's breath. And that's different than the rest of the created order. It's different than the animals in nature. It's different than the birds and the fish. None of the rest of them are told to us to have God's breath in them. God forms us, he crafts us, and then he breathes into our nostrils. There's an intimacy. It's something unique and personal. We are made from dust, which is humbling, yet we're filled with God's life and purpose. That's the first. God crafts man. Each of these four points, by the way, today are going to stack up. So I want you to see the way these things flow together. Not only are we crafted by God, not only does God craft man, but next I want you to see in the text that God cares for man. Look at verse 8. It says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it uh, divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pashan. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Uh, Delium and Onyx stone are there. By the way, before services this morning, Christina, who had to read the text this morning, she's like, how do you pronounce this word Delium? And I said, why not just say Vibranium? You know, the, the, that's the mineral that Wakanda got rich off of. You guys know. No? It doesn't matter. She refused to do that because it felt like 
heresy probably, right? So she said, you said delium very well. Uh, We could be wrong about that. So anyway, go back to the text. Verse 12. The gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. By the way, gold, delium, and onyx stone were all, uh, those were all minerals that were used in the priestly vestments and and in the worship of God uh, by his people of Israel. That's a little bit of a side note. Verse 13. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows uh, east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The the second thing I want you to see here, I don't want you to get too bogged down. It's easy to look at this and go, man, I want to get a map and I want to go and find exactly where Eden was, right? And there are books that have been written and all kinds of theologians that have tried to pinpoint exactly where it is, maybe in some part of Turkey or whatever. Let me just tell you, nobody knows, right? The the theologians are, and pun intended, they're all over the map on what this is pointing to. I think the best response in looking at the the identifying markers here is not to try and pinpoint exactly where it is, but to recognize how beautiful and fruitful what God has provided us, right? We look at it and we recognize it was a real place with actual minerals, with actual fruit trees, with actual water, which was always a source of life in the Bible. So don't try and pin down exactly where it is, but understand what it is. It is the creation, this garden and these rivers are a demonstration of God's care For we who he has crafted. Does that make sense? You see how they stack up? God is a craftsman, but he doesn't just create man out of the dust and breathe life into him and walk away. He's not an absentee father. No, he immediately steps in to provide what is lacking. It's interesting if you read verse 5, for instance, it says uh, that, that when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up because the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. The implication there is that the bushes or the shrubberies he's talking about in that case are the ones that are food providing shrubberies, right? We know there are other plants, but these are things that require some tilling and they require some work. So there was no food producing plant and God creates a garden, right? A place for man to find Fruit, what is that? Well, it's him recognizing what the lack is and then supplying what is needed. We'll see that next week when we look at verses 18 and following. When God looks at man and recognizes that he's alone and provides something to make up what is lacking. There's a demonstration of the character of God here. That he not only forms us and gives us life, but that he cares about us. That he's going to give us what we need. I like in verse 9 here that it says the fruit trees are both, uh, it says the fruit trees are both pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's an important distinction, right? He doesn't just say that they're valuable to keep us alive. These fruit trees, they provide nourishment. It says that they do that, but it also says they're beautiful. Again, think about God as the artisan. Think about God as the craftsman. He doesn't just create trees that provide food. He creates trees that are beautiful and provide food. He provides these rivers that provide beauty and life, sustenance, right? God cares about us. We see that God crafts us and he cares. He rests man there. He places man there in a place that is both beautiful and beneficial. And it says here that these trees are good for food. It's worth noting, just maybe in the back of your mind, that what God produces is good because he is good, right? What he has produced is good or very good because that's the nature of the artist. That's the nature of the craftsman. He is making good things because he himself is good. It says here that the tree of life and the tree of knowledge are in the middle of the garden. And uh, you, you don't want to necessarily get hung on the, up on those too much. We're going to talk about them in a second. But the idea here, even uh, there's fruit trees that are beautiful and beneficial. And then there are these two other trees that have special names, right? The tree of life and the tree of knowledge or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And those are sitting in the center of the garden. And you might have questions about like, 
what are those and how do they work? And we'll, we'll talk about it some, but before you get hung up on all your questions about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, here's what you need to understand is that from the very beginning in the garden that God creates, there is a spiritual realm. There's a spiritual reality. These trees are different than apple trees. They're different than, you know, banana trees are different th- than, than orange trees. This is something else. It's something that has a spiritual nature and a spiritual dimension. There are spiritual ramifications to what happens with these trees. So from the very beginning in God crafting us and caring for us, he's providing things that not only take care of our natural needs, but our spiritual needs as well. Does that make sense? He's taking care of the lack, both natural or physical and spiritual. These trees are in the middle. And it shows that God provides and supplies when there is a lack. I cannot read this idea of God providing food, God providing water and nourishment, both beautiful and beneficial, without thinking of Ephesians 2.10, right? The fact that God not only, not only creates, uh, he not only creates all of this at the beginning, but that he reforms us. Ephesians 2.10, by the way, says we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good deeds which he created in advance for us to do, right? So not only was God a a craftsman at the beginning, but in Christ we are recreated with beauty, right, and benefit. The same craftsman that's working and that cares about us. And I also can't help but think about the gospel. We talk about a God that recognizes what is lacking, a God who recognizes that his people will need food and water, who recognizes that they have a spiritual dimension and provides what they will need, to accommodate that, that is the very same God that recognizes that you and I are lost in our sin, are separated from God because of our brokenness. We can't have a relationship with him because of the fall of man, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. And into that lack, he sends his very son, Jesus, who comes and takes the sin of the world upon himself. He dies as a substitute. He puts himself in our place and dies on our behalf sheds his blood, rises from the dead, extends to us by his grace the very same resurrection life. What is he doing in the gospel if not recognizing a lack or a need in mankind and providing sufficiency for that? Providing something beautiful and beneficial in the death and resurrection of Christ. You see the pattern in who God is? Both craftsman and caretaker. He's caring. He loves us. We see God crafts man and God cares for man. Thirdly, let's keep reading. Look at verse 15 says here, the Lord God took man, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The third, third one of these alliterated words I'd want you to see today, not only does he craft us, not only does he care for us, but he commissions us. It says here that God rested the man in the garden to work and to keep it, to work and to keep it. The idea of, of working and keeping the garden uh, is the idea of both um, cultivation and guardianship cultivation and guardianship, that he puts the man in the garden, what? To do what? To, to produce more good and to protect what is good. If everything that God creates is good because he has said so and because he is good, he puts the man in as his ambassador, as his, as his commissioned uh, sort, sort of uh, creation in order to keep and protect the goodness that God has created. Well, this is no different than the ongoing mission that God has given to all of us. He doesn't just put man in the garden and say, Hey, I gave you life and breath. I breathed into your nose a couple of minutes ago. Now you figure it out. He doesn't just put man into the garden or put man onto the planet and say, hey, you know, like do your best. I don't really have a plan. I just thought it would be interesting to make some people and see what they do. So surprise me. No, no, no. 
God puts man in the garden and says, hey, I've put you here for a purpose. And that purpose is that you would cultivate and guard the goodness that I have provided. So that there will be growth. So that there will be continuance. So that there's endurance over time. It's the same thing we're called to now. What what are we doing in this life? When we as a church talk about our mission, right? We say empowered by the Holy Spirit, Fullerton free as a loving community, united in sacrifice, living like Christ for the glory of God. What, What is that at its heart? Well, it's about cultivating and guarding the goodness of God on display, revealing Christ in our city, in our neighborhood. When we talk about our vision pillars, the people we want to become in the years ahead, people of radiant peace, people of revolutionary kindness, people of prophetic engagement and unforced appeal. What are those if not cultivating and guarding the goodness of God on display in our lives and in our community and in our neighborhoods? God not only crafts man, he not only cares for man, but he invites man into partnership in cultivating and guarding the goodness that he has put on display. Man is not left to plot his own course. He does not have to wonder what to do. Now that's not to say you don't have to make decisions about what you're going to do for a vocation or what you want to major in in college or where you're going to go to school or who you're going to marry or what kind of car you're going to drive. There's all kinds of decisions to be made. But what it says is that there's an overarching commissioning that happens in the life of all of man who has been created. And that call is to live in this life and to cultivate and guard the goodness of God on display. And that comes from the very beginning. That whatever vocation you choose or whatever spouse you choose or whatever car you decide to drive or whatever, from the tiny decisions to the great decisions, have the potential to be the cultivation and guardianship of the glory of God on display. And that happens from the beginning. We're not left to sort of wonder. God assigns as well here, it's just kind of worth noting, that God assigns both physical work and mental work. For some of you, maybe you're hoping that, uh, you know, like you, you can't wait for retirement or you can, maybe you can't wait for Jesus to come back because when Jesus comes back, it feels like, man, we won't have to work anymore. I hate to, hate to burst your bubble, but if you're one of those people who sort of thinks that physical or mental labor is the byproduct of the fall, the fall of man when sin entered into the equation, if you feel like work is, uh, is a curse and someday Jesus will fix everything and all work will go away, Sorry to disappoint, but what we see here is both mental and physical labor are a part of God's good design. Those things aren't going to go away, right? So, and, and uh, mental, when I talk about mental labor, in, in the chapter or the section we'll read next week, God will assign Adam the responsibility of naming the animals. That's not a physical exercise with a rake and a hoe and some clippers or whatever. He's not cultivating a garden. That's physical work. But the mental work of going, how do these animals fit in classes and species and which of them go together and how does this all line out? That's, that's part of the work that God's, God assigns. Neither of these are better or worse than the other. They are just a part of God's commissioning of us to keep and to, and to protect the goodness that God has made, right? Work isn't going away. Work will always be a part of our lives because it's a good thing that God created. That's even in Colossians verse uh, 23 of chapter 3. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So we see God crafts man. We see that God cares for man. We see that God commissions man. And then lastly, back to Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 16. After it says he he put the man in the garden to to work it and to keep it, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Let's just stop there and think about that. It's a longer sentence. We'll come back to it. But the fourth principle I want you to see is that God commands him. God commands him. He crafts man. See how these things stack up. God is the one who forms us. He is also the one who cares for us. He commissions us. He invites us to to cultivate and protect his goodness on display. And then he gives a commandment, right? 
So we see that God is both a partner and a king, right? He's both a partner and a king. But he, he gives a commandment. And the commandment is, enjoy all of this, right? First and foremost, that's the way he leads. I don't know what kind of parent you are. You might be the kind of parent that leads with the bad news or that leads with like, hey, on Saturday, we're just going to be working around the house doing chores all day. And at the end, you get to have a cupcake. Or if you're like, hey, on Saturday, we're going to have a cupcake if we get all the vacuuming done. Different parents do it different ways. I want you to see that the heart of God is in providing good options for us. God gives good options. He commands them first, enjoy all of this, right? He commands them, you may eat freely from any tree in the garden. I created these these fruit trees and they are both beautiful and beneficial. And you are commanded to eat them up, right? Go crazy. You got to taste all this stuff. It's awesome. I command you, enjoy all of this. That's That's the commandment of God. But it comes with a caveat, and you know that. As we read it, listen to the way God says it. He says, says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He says, enjoy all of this, but don't eat from the tree of knowledge or you will die. This is a reminder, if nothing else, uh, and we don't want to miss this. This is a reminder that God knows better than his creation what is good and bad for them. From the very beginning, God knows better than his creation what is good and bad for them. I'm guessing these two trees in the center of the garden, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, looked very similar to the other trees. How would they have known what was good for them and what was bad for them if God hadn't told them? We still live in a world where people are going, you know what? I know what God has said is good for me. I know what God has commanded. I know what God's expectation looks like, but I want to do it my way. I want to eat what I want to eat. I want to taste what I want to taste. I want to go where I want to go. I want to experience what I want to experience. And what do we do? We take God and his commandments out of the center and we put ourselves into the center, right? I want you to see that from the very beginning of God walking with man, he was good in saying, I've given you all of this to enjoy, but be careful. I've given you all this to enjoy, but obedience is required. God gives good options. And that comes from a place of recognizing that he knows better than we do what we need. He knows better than we do what's good for us. When when my Apple MacBook breaks, guess who I don't ask for help? The the Macintosh, or excuse me, the the Microsoft people, right? When I want to know how this laptop works, I go to the people who make it. I, oh, it's, it's true in every facet of life. The maker knows how the thing is meant to be designed. It's crazy that the creation would go, I know better than the creator what's good for me because I have appetites and there are things I want and things I want to try and places I want to go. I know best. No, no, no. Look, he crafted you. He cares for you. He commissions you and he commands you for your good, for your good. God alone at this point in the story knows what's good and bad for man. And that's still true today. If you're wondering why to pay attention to what God says in his word, if you're wondering this morning why it's beneficial to understand who God is and what his expectation is, it's because he knows better how your life is intended to be lived than you do. And when he gives us a command like this, it is for his glory and our good. God says, don't eat from that tree in the center. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He addresses them personally. He gives them good options. And the good options are obey and enjoy. Obey and enjoy. He says, look at all of this, but isn't it, isn't it just like, isn't it just like us that he goes, man, you can taste all of this is all yours. Go crazy. And we're like, uh, I think I want to taste the one you told me I couldn't have. Right. We'll talk about that in a, in a couple of weeks, but it is so like man to go, no, I don't, I don't want all of these trees. I'm not interested in all of this good stuff you've offered me. I want the one thing that you've said I can't have. We'll see that that sort of made 
present in the lives of these men and women as well. But what this tells us, when God looks at him and says, don't eat from that tree, what that emphasizes. Remember when I said uh, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge in the center of the garden tells us that there is a spiritual dimension to us. When God looks at them and says, obey me, essentially, when he says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you'll die. When he, when he says, obey me to them, what he's also noting, and we don't want to miss it in our study of the book of Genesis and our understanding how we walk with God, is that not only is there a physical, uh, a physical dimension to who we are, a natural dimension, not only is there a spiritual dimension to who we are, but unlike the rest of the created order, there is a moral dimension to who we are. There's a moral dimension to who we are. The ability to know the difference between right and wrong. Animals don't have that. Uh, the, the plants certainly don't have that. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that the created order, the rest of the created order, worships God incessantly and involuntarily. Remember that? That the skies and the trees and the rocks and the hills, they cry out all the time. But not because they choose to. They do that without the option. We alone in all of creation are given the option to glorify God. And sadly, what we do with that option, uh, it gives us the opportunity to glorify God in a way that's greater than the mountains and the trees and the animals and the plants. But many times we take that option and we use it to glorify anything other than God. When God looks at them and says, you can eat of all these trees, but don't eat of that tree or you'll die. What's he, what's he pointing at? He's pointing at there. You have a moral dimension to who you are and you are morally responsible and morally accountable for what you do with that moral dimension. It matters. God doesn't look at the animals and say, hey, you don't eat of that tree either. He doesn't look at the plants and say, hey, I don't want any vines growing on that tree. Why? Because they don't, have any, they don't have any consciousness. They don't have any cognition. We do. There's a moral dimension to who we are. And with that moral dimension, he places an expectation in his commandment that we will choose the good. That we will choose the obedient. Now, if you're like me, th- those are my four main points, right? That God crafts us that he cares for us, that he commissions us to cultivate and keep all the goodness that he's created, and and then he commands us to obey him, to find life in obedience and all the good things, all the good options that he's given. But if you're like me, you read a text like this, and and there's a place your mind, maybe, there's a place your mind goes, for me, certainly does. I find myself asking the question, why put the tree there at all? You know what I mean? If the tree is the only thing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the only thing that will kill them. If that's the thing that brings about disobedience and death, like don't put it in there, right? Why even have it? Let's not have that tree. Let's just have things that keep things happy and simple and healthy all the time, right? Or if you have to have that tree, like build a castle around it and lock it behind a gate, put a big fence or put it up on top of a mountain that's unclimbable or whatever, right? Why put the tree in a place where they can go and eat from it, which they do? Why put it there? Well, there's a good answer. I want you to think about this with me. Remember that God is glorified in us and we enjoy a relationship with him in our obedience, right? The, the tree itself, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by the way, and this is just my opinion, is not a magic tree, right? That's not like a supernatural tree. I don't think that fruit is some weird fruit we've never seen anywhere else. I, I just think it's a, it's just a, it's a placeholder in some ways. I'll give you an example of this. I, uh, I went to a Mexican food restaurant. And my buddy Ryan ordered a bowl for an appetizer, a bowl of food. And I would call that bowl the bowl of what crickets taste like, right? The bowl of what crickets taste like. Now, prior to partaking from the bowl, I had no knowledge of what uh, crickets taste like. And I could have stayed away from the bowl of crickets. And to this day, I would not know what crickets taste like. Now, that's not a magical bowl. There's not some sort of supernatural power invested in the bowl. It's just a bowl of edible crickets, I guess you could, some people would call it that. I wouldn't call it that. I 
tasted the crickets, right? Part of the appetizer. I tasted the crickets. And as soon as I tasted the crickets, my eyes were opened. And I knew the difference between crickets and actual food. You see what I'm saying? Right? I knew the difference. I'll never eat crickets again. Now, what, did something magical happen in me? No. My eyes were open to an experience. Uh, I was open to understanding, but there wasn't a magical property there. It was the bowl of what crickets taste like. And I walked through that door and found that I did not like what they taste like, right? God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I, I don't think that's a magical tree. There are some people who will disagree with me. I just think it's, it's a tree that's in the center that God says, this is a vehicle for obedience, when I say to you, you've got the opportunity to obey me, I'm giving you a good option. God gives good options, remember? And the good option is there's one tree that if you'll stay away from it, I will be glorified in your life. I will be glorified by you just obeying me. The opportunity to obey is embodied in that tree, right? Now you might go, well, what difference is that? Like why, why obedience? Why does that have to be a thing? Well, I'll tell you, remember that God uh, is glorified in us, unlike the rest of the created order, when we choose to worship him, when we choose to honor him, when we choose to obey him. So I'll give you just another quick example. I have uh, at my house a Furby. You guys know what a Furby is? If you don't know what a Furby is, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Just know this. It's like a little robot, right? It's like a little fuzzy robot. It's got blinking eyes and ears that move and it, it has a creepy voice, whatever. I have one. That's all I'm saying. One day when I was living in Long Beach, I was in my office at work. And if you're wondering what I do in my office at work, this is a good idea of kind of how this goes. But I was holding my Furby and I was feeding it. Now, when you feed a Furby, uh, all you do to feed a Furby, for your information, is you just jam your finger into its mouth. And when you jam your finger into its mouth, it goes, mmm, 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 yum, yum, right? And you just do that for a while. And if you do it long enough, it'll blink its eyes and it'll talk to you and whatever. One particular day, I'm feeding the Furby in my office. And you guys, its ears like went up and down a couple of times and its eyes blinked. And then it looked at me. I'm not joking. It looked at me and said, me love you. And I got to tell you guys, I got this warm feeling all over. The hair on my arms stood up and I looked at the Furby and I was like, I love you too. You know, and I, I gently set the Furby down and I ran up and down the office at work saying, the Furby and I are in love. No, I didn't, I didn't do any of that, right? Literally, I'm, I'm jamming my finger in the Furby's mouth. It's going, mm, and then it said, me love you. And you know how I felt? You know what I felt? Nothing. I felt nothing. I felt nothing when it, it said it loved me and I didn't feel anything. You want to know why? Because there's just a microchip in, inside that. It's like, a little, it's like a little programming circuit that when you jam your finger in long enough, it will finally express its affection. But it's meaningless because it's a programmed response. Similarly, with each of my four children, there have been moments after they learned English and learned how to walk and learned how to get around a little bit, there have been moments with my kids, each one, where they'll come to me, I'm sitting on a chair, I'm sitting on a couch, I'm sitting on the floor, they'll come to me and they'll climb up into my lap and they'll wrap their arms around me and they'll look into my eyes and they'll go, Daddy, I love you. Now let me tell you, that is like fireworks in my heart, right? That's because these kids, they crawled up in my lap, they put their arms around me, they could have said anything. They could have said, I got poopy pants or I want a cookie or Why, let's watch Blue's Clues. Or they could have said anything and they chose, they chose to express their affection. Do you see the difference between the Furby and a child, a human child? What's the difference? A programmed response versus a choice to love. God is not glorified in a world in which he says, obey me, and there is no opportunity to disobey. In creating a good choice for us to obey him, necessarily there is also created a negative option. It wouldn't truly be obedience if there wasn't the opportunity to disobey. So the reason he doesn't put it inside of a castle or the reason he doesn't put it on top of a mountaintop 
is that he wants it to be within reach so that when we choose to obey him and find life, he's truly glorified. It isn't that we didn't have the option. It's that we chose to honor him. You see the difference? That we chose to honor him. What we see in God giving this commandment, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is an invitation to find life in obedience. It's why Jesus himself in Matthew 4 will quote from Deuteronomy when he's tempted by Satan and he will say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is Jesus saying? He's saying we live, we find life in listening to what God says. It's why God himself will say to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, listen to my son. Why? His word matters. It's why Jesus in John 15, when he's calling us to abide in him, not only says that we're called to abide in his love, but that the way we abide in his love is by keeping his commandments. Obedience to the God who crafted us and cares for us and commissions us. Obedience is where we find life. I think a lot of times we look at the commandments or the expectations of God and we go, oh, this is just God trying to be a killjoy. He's trying to take all the fun things. He doesn't want me to experience things. We certainly see Adam and Eve going, well, I want to know what that tree tastes like. Who's he to tell me I can't taste it? I want to know what it's like to be wise. And that is so like us as human beings. He creates a world in which trust and obedience are actually possible. And instead, we feel entitled to know everything, see everything, taste everything. We don't trust. We don't obey. Because we envision ourselves at the center of creation rather than God and obedience at the center of creation. He and his word are at the center. I was at Target yesterday and they put out a thing over the loudspeaker that goes, Welcome to Target. While wearing a mask, you have the opportunity to shop among 20,000 different items. Or if you don't want to wear a mask, enjoy www.target.com, right? Now that whole thing seemed like a very positive message, right? 20,000 items I can enjoy. But you hear what was between the lines, right? That in order to enjoy these 20,000 items, if you want to be in the store, you've got to have a mask on. Whether you like that or not, that, that's Target's message. God is saying, I created this world. I crafted you and this world. I understand what is lacking and I will provide it. I'm commissioning you to cultivate and protect all of this goodness on display. But obedience is a part of what we're talking about because I know better what you need than you do. And we look at it and we go, oh, all he's got to say are negative things. No, that's not true. What he said is, look at all these great options. Enjoy this life I created for you. But we, in our selfishness and sin, tend to focus on the one thing or the two things that God has said not to. Each and every one of us are invited to glorify God in every option. We have options all day long. Every moment represents a potential opportunity for God to be glorified in our obedience. Every thought, every word, every deed, every attitude, all of those are are, are like raw glory for God that can be harvested for, for his good, for his glory and the good of others, right? And yet so often we don't even think about what we're saying. We don't think about the things we repeat. We don't think about the places we go or the stuff we do. We just sort of do what, what our appetites lead us towards. And so for each and every one of us, as we look at this and we see a God who crafts us, who cares for us, who commissions us and commands us, the call is to look at every fork in the road. And we're, we're confronted with these all day long. Every fork in the road, before you speak, before you say something, before you go somewhere, before you spend a dollar, before you drive, before you interact, whatever, every moment is a fork in the road where we should be stopping to think, will I glorify God in this next moment or will I serve myself? Will I glorify God with this word? Will I glorify God with this action? Will I glorify God with this attitude? Or will I serve myself? Because life is found 
in obedience to God's good invitation to glorify him. I don't know what kind of crossroads you're at. I don't, I don't know what kind of options you have today. Maybe they're just little things. Maybe you're thinking about where you're going to go to lunch or what you're going to watch on TV this afternoon or what you're going to do this week. Maybe they're just little things, but there may also be some like gigantic crossroads in your life. You may be trying to decide what you want to do as a career. You may be trying to decide whether or not you want to get married. You may be trying to decide how you want to invest your money. You may be, like, there are all kinds of things. And you know that each one of those, each one of those crossroads, that there isn't even just one good option to glorify God, but there are many good options to glorify God. And all you got to do is eat of the fruit that God has provided. Just look and go, what is God providing here? Or what is it that my selfish desire wants that doesn't glorify God? And pick the right option. We're going to finish our service this morning in another time of response. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And as they do, I just want you to look into your own heart. I want you to look into your own life. I know, I know that responding publicly takes vulnerability. It takes a little bit of transparency. It can be a little risky. But I think there's something really good for our community, for us as people, to respond. I don't know what kind of options you've got in front of you, the choices you're trying to make. But as we close the service today, the band's going to lead us in a couple of songs. And, and as they do, uh, some of our leaders are going to come back up. People that are on our staff or some of the elders that are in the service are going to come. And we're just going to stand here making ourselves available. Nothing, nothing magical about that either. But we want to invite you, as, as God stirs in your heart, if you've got a, a big option in front of you, if you've got a big fork in the road you want prayer about, let's pray together about it. Come forward and, and let us know. We'll, we'll talk about it. Maybe you want to just come and kneel down here. If kneeling down is hard, you can come and sit in one of these front seats or whatever. But we, just want to, we don't just want to hear God's word. We want to respond to it. And so as the band plays, uh, I'm just going to invite you. I'm going to invite some of our leaders to come stand here. And I'm going to invite you to look into your life and go, is there a response that God is calling from me? And if so then I'll invite you to move out of your seats and come down here and let's pray together as we do that.